My guest today on Washed Up Journalist is James Fogarty, who spent 11 years as a staff writer for the Omaha World Herald. He spent 20 years in corporate communications. James was the sports editor of his college newspaper, once worked as a stringer for Newsweek, once owned and edited a national magazine, was a longtime panelist on a TV news analysis program called Kaleidoscope, and has received, quote, Numerous journalism, writing, and speaking awards from professional associations in various universities. Fogarty is a member of the Omaha Press Club, was once nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, and received statewide and national recognition for his 1979 series of stories that uncovered corruption in the Omaha Municipal Court System. He's also a veteran. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army, served two years in West Germany, including at 7th Army Headquarters in Heidelberg. He received the Army Commendation Medal for his work with the Deputy Chief of Staff of Communications and Electronics. Quite an impressive dossier. Welcome, Mr. Fogarty. It's a proud moment for me today because you are the original washed-up journalist. Welcome. Before I have you take us blow-by-blow through all your professional awards from various universities, um, I need for you to explain, for those of us who don't know, what exactly it means to be a stringer for a magazine, because to those of us that don't know, it sounds a little bit like a made-up job or like something from the adult film industry. So tell me, what is it that a stringer does? You're a correspondent for some publication. Uh, Most of the magazines, even in their heyday, could not afford a staff member in Nebraska and Iowa, so you would take a newspaper person such as me, and uh, you would become their correspondent. Maybe once a year they'd run your name in a list of correspondents, and you got paid you, if you did a story for them. They, they might use it, they might not use it, they might use part of it, but you'd, you'd get a, a, a humble paycheck out of the thing. So it was, I did that for about uh, seven or eight years. It was recurring but inconsistent work? Is that a fair way to say Well, I was, uh, Newsweek magazine once asked me to determine the number of country schools remaining in operation in Nebraska. And when I checked with the Nebraska Department of Education and they said something along the lines of 1,780, Newsweek magazine refused to believe it because they were only finding a few smattered here and there. But Nebraska has always cherished the school down the street, especially out in the country. Right. That's good. Um, One more quick item before we jump into Q&A. I understand uh, some bad news. Recently, your barber passed away unexpectedly. And so I hope all our listeners will join me in offering you condolences. I know how important it is to get a good haircut, or all your hairs for that matter. So our condolences. You you never appreciate what you have until it's gone. That's true. Okay, so let's back up to um, whether this occurred in childhood or early adulthood. When did you first decide you wanted to have a career in journalism? I know it's kind of the family business because of your father's career, which you can explain his role for the the Omaha World Herald, but when did you make the decision that this is what I want to do with my life? That's kind of interesting. I, I'm the sort who went to college and sort of was shopping. Uh, I wasn't real serious about much uh, for the first couple of years. I, I, uh, I was always interested in things such as English, and uh, uh, I did not fancy myself as a writer, 
but I took some journalism courses and uh, and uh, and my father was a newspaper editor and and one of the key things in my life was uh, having listened to my parents and grandparents and that's a good thing that would be a piece of advice for your listeners get the old folks in your family interviewed real soon because they have stories that will disappear forever if you don't get them down uh, uh, somehow recorded or somehow written. How big of an impact was your father as a career newsman? Did, did that lead you to become a reporter? Did that make it an easier out, so to speak, to actually, go into that career? Actually, no? it made it a little more difficult because I ended up at the newspaper he was working at, and he was a, a fairly senior uh, editor in the operation, and I was a, the the absolute rookie in the operation. And uh, I always had the feeling the uh, other the people I was working for were bending over backwards, not to show me any favoritism. Okay. The tin ceiling. I got you. Okay. Um, so when you walked into the front door of the Omaha World Herald in 1969, I want you to describe for me what it looked like. You know, what was the environment like? I'm sure much different compared to today. Who were some of your early mentors in those first few months on the job? I walked right into uh, 1952. In what uh, way? In, in, in the sense that what you see in the movies, in the old movies, the, the hundreds and hundreds of people at desks, uh, as far as the eye can see, all pecking away, that's exactly what, what I found. Um, I discovered there was a thing called the uh, city desk, and they gave the assignments to reporters, and that there was a copy desk where very smart people, very good editors, uh, took all of the stories, including mine, and, and I'm sure in my early days they, they weren't much, and the, and, the, and the brave editors turned them into something very readable for the, for the, the clients, the, the customers of the newspaper. Uh, but but I, there were, this, these were the green eye shade days. That we were, had royal typewriters. Uh, when, when you touch a keyboard, you know, and you get an A with, with a very small movement of a finger, you had to move the finger about three-quarters of an inch or even a whole inch to get anything to happen on a royal typewriter. And most of them been around a long time, and the O's and the P's and the other things that had circles in them would cut holes in the paper <laughs> when you would write. And uh, if you're typing very fast, sometimes the holes would be flying out. And, uh, and every, every uh, story you wrote had to have a, a carbon copy, and that involved a piece of carbon paper, which created a second version of what you were putting on the front page. I also lived through the, the, the dawn of computers in the newspaper business, which were mainframe computers, and the, and the newsroom was full of dumb terminals. And the, uh, the situation was that the system crashed a lot. And occasionally you'd be writing along and doing quite well and very proud of your eight or 10 paragraphs and somebody would holler, sign off. And if you didn't hit a certain code, then you might lose everything you had done to that point. Save early, so, save often, right? Yeah, very, very much. And, and they had these new fantastic things called Xerox machines where you could take a copy and make another copy. That was something new. You really are old, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Um, back to your, your mentors. Who, who was your first boss? Like, who did you report to the first few months on the job? I worked for a fellow from Council Bluffs, Iowa, named Carl Keith, who was the best editor I ever worked for in my life. He was the night managing editor of the World Herald. Uh, Carl was a gentle soul, a uh, brilliant journalist. He could uh, recognize a story. You know, recognizing stories 
That's a skill. Is the key? Is, it's a skill. It very frequently is. I mean, you and I drive down the street and we see graffiti on a wall, and you go, "Oh, geez, somebody drew on the wall," and a reporter will go by and say, "Is what kind of a message is that artist giving us?" Right. You know, that sort of thing. And Carl was uh, very gentle with me. He would call me over if I turned in a story and say gentle things to me, such as, uh, "Jim, do you think we should tell the reader where all of this happened?" <laughs> And I would say, yeah, yeah, that that'd be a good idea. Let let's add that. Let's say where this all happened. A roundabout way of saying I missed some of the key who, what, where, why, when elements. Did you work nights immediately? I worked nights uh, from five thirty p.m. to two a.m. Like the day day one, you started in the night at night. Right. Well, I was did... not. I was not a reporter right away. I I, I learned uh, um, copy editing at, at a very low level. The, the first thing they gave me was a one paragraph story. And I had to write a single-line headline over the one-paragraph story. And I struggled with that for 15, 16, 17 minutes. So you were not a natural. Well, I, <laughs> Or you were, but you were a late-developing well, natural. In, in our days, you had to have, you had a count on headlines. Uh, a W was a wide thing, so it was a two. An L was a, was a, a skinny thing, so it was a half. And you, when, when you wrote a headline, let's say uh, the cat in the tree, okay? You had to count all of that and make sure that, the, that your headline was not exceeding the space available in hot type. Uh, hot type is another situation. <laughs> we're really digging, well, back, going back in the playbook well, here. <laughs> there was a definitely, there were definitely no uh, uh, computers. I would there. also add that the cat in the tree is a pretty weak headline. That we, was a we, terrible, you need a verb. You the need cat, a, cat, yeah. Topples tree would be a much, much better. <laughs> much better. 100% better. Yeah. So Carl Keith was a good guy to work for. Um, what were your beats, or when did you become a reporter? Uh, I worked for about four or five months, uh, basically learning uh, the newsroom and, and writing uh, headlines, and I got better at writing my headlines. Uh, I distinctly remember they asked me to write a headline once on a, the planting of a juniper tree at uh, the uh, Homestead National Monument in uh, down in southern Nebraska. And I, I studied the words for quite a while, and I, and I put together a headline that said, Homestead Sprouts Juniper. Turned it into a verb, an action thing, and I handed it in, and the night editor said, who wrote that? And I raised my hand, and everybody applauded, meaning that was the first decent thing I did in five months. <laughs> you had earned your stripes at that right. point. Did you... Uh, um, bars, not stripes. Thank you. Were you a natural at working nights? Because I know a lot of people for whom that just wouldn't be an option, but did you take to it pretty well? I made the worst mistake you can make in, in uh, newspapering. I loved the nights. What did you love about it? Just the routine? I loved having the city all to myself. Because it's quiet after uh, hours. Because if there was a fire, it was my fire. If there was a ruckus at the jail, it was my ruckus. Uh, I got to meet a lot of people because the police chief comes around, the coroner comes around. The fire chief comes around when there are things, and you get to meet them and interact with them. And, it's good to be buddies with the coroner. And, and you can figure out how angry they get when you misquote them. Right. D did, um, did you have to alter your route? I mean, what was your routine like? When did you go to sleep? When did you wake up? How did that affect your married life? Tell uh, me you were married at the time. We, we had two young children. I know I, had a, I have a wonderful wife of 50 years now. Congratulations. And, uh, Shout out to Colleen. Uh, everything changed because I would go to work from 530 a p.m. to 2 a.m. and I would be home and uh, my wife decided that the only way to do that was to change the the girls sleeping habits so they wouldn't go to bed until 
much later in the evening, say that you that, that you do, and then perhaps we'd all wake up at the same time in the morning. Okay. And then yeah, it, it you had to, but I did that for three years, and uh, and 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 there was there was an old editor named George Sedlicek, which would be Sedlasek if you were actually going to the way it was pronounced in the old country. And George uh, told me several times, he was working nights in retirement, and he said, Fogarty, you got to get off of this night beat because it's going to ruin you. And he, and he was right. I mean, you're also, you're also invisible. You're not there for, for the great editor teams of the day, and you're not in on the, you know, on the you're, story You're meetings. the second shift. Yeah, you're the second shift. Okay, but you liked it. That was kind of that I loved you. it. I, I knew most of the police. I knew a lot of the firemen. I knew. I just got to meet all kinds of great characters, and I, you and you do that at night. I would imagine too, working nights covering stories that have to do with crime and corruption and other things. You probably have been in some places that maybe made you feel a little uncomfortable. Probably met a few shady characters. Well, um, I'll tell you one thing: there was no such thing as yellow police tape in my day. We carried a card signed by the mayor and the public safety director that said the holder of this card uh, is entitled to cross police and fire lines and is accorded the courtesies of this department. So You got to go where you I, want. Well, 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 I got to go where I want. I mean, you know, there'd be a police sergeant who would say, don't stand there or don't go there. But but we were there. I, I went in on raids. I went in on, I found myself in all kinds of people's houses wondering what I was doing in there. Did you tell me, too, on at least one occasion, if not more, that you were used as a stand-in in police lineups? I stood two lineups over the years. Because you have to find, if you, if they're looking for a guy with a dark beard and uh, who's about six foot one and, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, you know, and, and r race, racial characteristics, you have to have five people with those. So you, they look all over the police station and, and uh, they found me one night, and I perfectly matched uh, a, a robbery suspect or something. And uh, on that particular one, uh, I was not chosen by the by the witnesses. What would you have done? But on another occasion, on well, there were there were four or five witnesses on another occasion, and I was chosen by one of the witnesses. Of course, I was never prosecuted for armed robbery. I, That's where it helps. I, to, I just didn't do it. It helps to know the cops in a situation like that. <laughs> Um, I think you've told me, too, that you used, for, for years, you walked to work. Did you walk to work at night also, like at 5 o'clock when you'd leave your house? Did you no. I, li I lived way out west part of the city when I was working. Okay. So you, we had a Volkswagen that I brought back from Germany, and we, I would drive it down the interstate every night. But once I got onto days, I got into the to the walking habit. It was a one and three-quarter miles about from my house to the World Herald. But I believe you also told me the World Herald had special cars for reporters to use at night. Did you then drive your VW around, or did you take the no, World I, Herald No, I took the World Herald car because it had police radio in it. Okay. And the police radio, which at that time was about seven different frequencies, uh, you have a scanner that goes across all the frequencies, and it would lock on whatever the most recent call was. But you get a very good feel for what kind of a night it was, you know, if there's a lot of action or very little action. And, and uh, But I, I, I've been to a lot of scenes before the police and fire get there. That's you one of the things that happen. I mean, if you're at 19th and Dodge and there's an event at 20th and Dodge, you keep going and you're there. Okay, quick break here to tell you that today's episode of the Washed Up Journalist podcast is brought to you by Legacy Preservation. Since 2006, Legacy Preservation has been working with successful people across the country to capture their stories for posterity. Legacy can interview, research, write, edit, design, and print your family or business book. 
It's one-stop shopping for all your private publishing needs. Legacy Preservation. We write history, yours. Special thanks to James Fogarty for his time with us today. Also, thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing today's soundtrack. Now, without further ado, back to our conversation with James Fogarty. In the early years of working for the Omaha World Herald, did you ever either have a direct offer to go to another paper in a different city, or did you ever think about trying to go somewhere and... and, um, make your bones on your, I don't want to say you didn't make your bones on your own, but in a sense you were still in your father's shadow at the time. Did you ever think about going somewhere for a fresh start? That's an interesting question, and there are a couple of answers. I'm kind of an Omaha boy, and I, I, the Army sent me to Germany for a couple of years, but I really enjoyed being back. Uh, so not really. I, well, I had, I had uh, fellow workers at the newspaper who went on and did things. One of them started an advertising agency and did very, very well. Some of them went into magazine work and did very, very well. So I had, uh, I guess the most exciting thing I ever did is I applied for a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard University. And uh, that was when I discovered that I was the wrong size, wrong color, wrong gender, and everything else because all of the people who got it that year didn't look like me. <laughs> I'm sure they were horrible writers, but just got lucky based on characteristics. Um, okay, let's talk about the real reason you're here, your, your claim to fame having been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. And by the way, is it Pulitzer or Pulitzer? Well, I was told by somebody who knew the family in St. Louis, and they said the family pronounced it Pulitzer with a long U. But I, I noticed most most uh, magazine and radio pe- or, uh, tel- uh, newspaper people say Pulitzer, but we'll say Pulitzer for the sake yeah, of this that's podcast. Prob- that's probably right. Anybody from St. Louis listening, call in, tell us how you pronounce it. So, so you have this story in 1979 where you started covering the corruption within the Omaha Municipal Court. Let's start with how you got onto that story. Did you uncover something on your own? Did somebody tip you off, or was it just kind of common knowledge around the city that there was a, a bucket of crap going on and somebody needed to look into it. Didn't need any tips. You'd walk in the front door and realize the definition of chaos. Uh, the court was located in uh, the former police station at 10th and Dodge Streets, and it was the place for misdemeanor crimes. I mean, uh, uh, drunken driving, which is certainly serious, but there was a time when if you got a speeding ticket, you had to go to court. Uh, you know, and nowadays you either pay it or you, you only have to go to court if you challenge it. But you had to go to court on a speeding ticket. So it was it was a really a, a overcrowded, uh, under-considered uh, mess of a place. And unfortunately at the time, I, I think that this, a lot of the judges there felt that they were uh, not at the level that they deserved and they were had chips on their shoulders and their behavior was questionable, their personal behavior. But it didn't take long to notice people walking up the steps for the afternoon court session with a judge, with the judge's arm around them and, and saying, oh, Henry, we'll take care of that. Well, that's, a problem. that's, that's the sort of operation it was. Uh, and also it was a, it was a, a, an anomaly in the, in the state legal system because the, the Omaha Municipal Court was a function of the city government of Omaha. And all of the other courts were a function of the state of Nebraska, other than federal courts, but all of the state, county courts, uh, state courts, all of those things were were under the auspices of the Chief Justice of the Nebraska Supreme Court. 
So this was off on its own and funded by the city, and it, it was it was a real mess, and it was uh, it would have been easy to just kind of cover the thing and forget about the ridiculous things you saw, but I decided to write a few of them down and do some stories. And there were some serious, you had judges that were spending more time at the nearby bar than they were in their chambers. You had the situation you described where they'd have their hand on somebody on the front steps telling them they'd take care of it. I mean, this was, there were major problems going on. How many judges were there in the court? Oh, my, it, my recollection is eight or 10 at okay. that time. Okay. Uh, and and, uh, and some of them got promoted out of there, and some of them were pretty doggone good. Who were who were your sources for the story? Uh, my sources included all the prosecutors and the defense lawyers, because the prosecutors felt they were getting screwed on on uh, criminal justice, and the, de the defense lawyers thought they were getting screwed in the opposite direction because the prosecutors had too much influence. It was it was just a mess, and. Uh, so I started writing stories on, on well, well, for instance, there was a civil side, too. I mean, it wasn't just a criminal operation or a traffic operation. I don't remember the numbers, but if you wanted to sue me over something that happened in my yard, I, I, maybe it was 10000 up to 20000 I have no idea. But a civil case of a small amount of money was in the municipal court. Well, it became apparent that if a judge did not want to rule in a civil case because he'd have to rule against a buddy of his, he would put the thing on the credenza and forget about it. The file would just simply disappear. So I interviewed some lawyers who were involved in that sort of thing who could not get a decision out of a judge. And after I wrote a couple of stories, a whole several hundred decisions came flying off the credenzas, I know. This sounds like a scene from a movie that needs to get made of oh, just total chaos oh, and oh, it was a movie. It, it was a fun place, too. There was a judge who... Um, <laughs> He was one of the good guys. Uh, he was also an opera singer. He sang uh, with the Omaha Opera in, in the choruses and that sort of hit, a very booming baritone voice. And whenever he found somebody like with a traffic charge and he noticed on their uh, driver's license that it was their birthday, he would get up and sing happy birthday and dis dismiss their case. Well, then there'd be another 150 people who didn't have the <laughs> birthday song. So it was a casual place. It was a, it was a place of trading favors, and it, it was just ridiculous. Not a, not a place where you could get sentenced to death. Oh, well, <laughs> that goes back to, I don't think I'm going to name him because his name is on a park, but that might not last much longer. But but fair to say that somebody was sentenced to death. Well, they, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, the denizens of the night uh, in the city of Omaha, as it is in all major cities, end up in court in the morning if they get arrested under a bridge or lying on a sidewalk. and the, They would go to the city jail. And uh, then the next day they would uh, they would have to go to court, which they would do frequently because of their lifestyles. Well, there was one judge who shall remain nameless at this point, who had found the language for the death penalty. And one day he had one of the gentlemen from the previous evening up in front of him and sentenced him to death. <laughs> <laughs> the guy, with the obvious reaction of shock and horror, was looking at the judge, and then the judge started laughing and commuted the sentence to. <laughs> One night served. Uh, so it, it was It was sort of a... Uh, cooler heads prevailed. Yes, cooler heads prevailed. So you, you run these stories from basically October of 79 through year end. And then, and I, I did a little bit of digging. You have a file, actually, which you generously lent to me on your Pulitzer nomination. And it seems like around the end of 1979 to early 1980, 
your stories kind of reached a crescendo and the court took action. A report was filed and change happened pretty fast. And that way your reporting really affected change. Well, uh, also about that time, the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court got a new chief justice who was a brilliant man and a man of uh, uh, a very businesslike man and who saw this ridiculousness going on and called me after about the third or fourth story and said, well, you and I need to talk. So I went to see him and and he said, uh, if, if this is as you are picturing it in the newspaper, I've got to do something. And, uh, and he said, uh, I'll, I'll keep an eye on the rest of your stories, but uh, as you know, I do not have the purse strings of the Omaha Municipal Court. He, I, they don't answer to me. They don't get their budget through me. And he said, so that'll have to change if the change has to be made. Well, the stories kept going. I don't know. There were 28, 29 stories. And, and the chief justice got very heavily involved and ordered a, a formal investigation and look-see into the operations of the court. And, and uh, at the end of that, he, uh, who, I believe he put the administrator of the state court system that sounds in, right. in charge of, uh, uh, of enforcing a series of changes in the operations of the municipal court. And um, Were you ever, in, in the course of writing these articles, were you ever threatened? Did you have any heat come on you from judges or people close to the court that thought you were either overstepping or or just unveiling information that the public really didn't need to know about? Sure did. Uh, Anything noteworthy? Well, I got a couple of bomb threats at home. That's comforting. Well, for a couple. Most of them were from teenagers who were, you know, probably related to somebody involved in the... Uh, but uh, but beyond bomb threats, just nothing. Well, I mean, you know, What's a bomb some twelve-year-old calls and says, "I'm going to put a bomb in your house." I kind of ignored it. I looked around to see if there was a bomb, though. I take it, you're, uh, yeah. But I, I was extremely unpopular with a lot of young lawyers. I was a young reporter at the time in my twenties, and there were a lot of young lawyers that I knew, and and you know, the, the, I was kind of breaking up the boys' club there, and. Uh, they, they couldn't get the favors they were getting before, and things got a lot more formal, and uh, so I was not real popular. As a matter of fact, the uh, the lawyers have a thing they call, I don't know, they, it was kind of like the press club. It was the uh, uh, Omaha... Not the Bar Association. Yeah, no, it, well, it was the... They, they would do a, a, a play, you know. Okay. A, a variety show. Variety show, and they, and they made me the subject of... Some of their fun a couple of times. That's fun. Well, at least that they, they were reading at least, which yeah. is good for the paper. So, okay, you, you run these stories. And, and I should point out that I'm not a lawyer. I do not have a degree. And I, I was coming at this from the outside. Probably and, why you and, wrote and good and stories. I, that, that might be a bit helpful because I was not restricted by procedures and this and that and the other thing. And uh, You looked at it practically like yeah, a normal just, person would. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's also point out that the chief justice got his work done. He got the legislature to make the Omaha Municipal Court part of the county court system, and that that was it. The the the, the fun was over. So you get the, the your hometown paper, the Omaha World Herald, nominates you for the Pulitzer Prize. Describe for me what you can recall about that process. I mean. Was there a, a big parade in the World Herald and they carried you around on a pillow? I mean, what 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 did that process look like or did it fly very under the radar at the time? It was very under the radar. It was very informal. I didn't even know it was happening. And a, a nice, nice gentleman in the advertising department who had to put the uh, nomination together according to some form 
uh, did it, and then he gave me a copy. I, I don't think I ever had an editor come and say, we're going to do this. Um, you didn't get a raise? I, I, as I recall at the time, anybody can nominate anybody for the Pulitzer Prize. And believe me, when you are nominated for it, and it's readily apparent that you probably didn't even get to the second round of judging, you have been to the bus leagues of journalism. But uh, it, but, but I, I also was very careful about talking to this very much. I mentioned it to a, a college class one evening. And sometimes they don't listen real clearly. You say you're nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, then they would write in their reports that I had won the Pulitzer No, 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 no. I was nominated. Big I, difference. I, I got to step one, and there were probably 20 steps till uh, the, the top, and I never made it anywhere near that. Just so you know. Gotcha. Don't over-report. Uh, how did your writing evolve in your time at the World Herald? You, you were there 11 years in all, from 69 to 80. What um, in in what ways did you sharpen your sword? I mean, I'm sure editors were um, valuable, but how did how did it change over time? No, editors were invaluable. Everything you do goes to a city editor or a night editor. Then it goes to the copy editors. Then it goes to the page editors, and all of those people are very very careful. And you make a certain number of mistakes, which young people do, uh, and then you never make them again. Uh, for instance, John, do you know how to spell accommodate? Yeah, there's two C's and two M's, and the rest of it is just status quo. <laughs> I remember the first time I met you, that was the, the test you gave me to see if well, I was Your listeners should, should know that it is A-C-C-O-M-M-O-D-A-T-E. And while they were thinking about it, they got it wrong. And, and I, they should also know that the, when he first asked me that question, I got it wrong also. I think I had two C's and one M. As Most frequently saying. misspelled word in the language. But at any rate, I mean, the editors are wonderful. They are invaluable. And, and you are very, very humbled sometimes by the seven sentences that you write and the five sentences that appeared in the newspaper, and you saw the extraneous junk that you didn't need, and you also see the important facts going from the fourth paragraph to the first paragraph, and you'd go, oh, that's the way you do it. So I, I, I would say that the, that the editors who do not get a lot of uh, uh, recognition are, are the backbone of, uh, of written journalism. They really are, and they're, they're, they're smart, and they're uh, they've been around a while, and they, they know where Dodge Street is. And um, you, you told me on more than one occasion, and I want to touch on this, you've told me or you've almost confessed to me that you don't get any sort of high out of your writing. I do. If I, if I feel like I've done a good job, I put my, my hands down from the keyboard, I hit save, and I get up, and I feel pretty good about myself. For you, it was more like a skill you performed, a little bit like a... I've always told people my fingers do my writing. Yeah, to talk about that, what does that mean? Uh, I, I get no excitement out of it. Uh, I, I get relief out of being done with a story. Uh, after having gone through 10 years with these editors, I know that my story is going to be good. It's going to be good reading. It's going to have everything where it should be. Uh, it's good writing. It's uh, I've got, But personally, I'm just not the kind who ever got... Uh, a big load of excitement out of finishing a story. Did, did you ever? I mean, was there no. ever a moment? Well, I, I may be in college sometimes. Uh, and then then I would, I'd say, boy, this is the greatest thing I've ever, you know, when I was a junior in college. And I turned it into a student editor who would butcher it into, and then I realized he was partially right. I, I don't know. But so, and I'm, and I'm telling you, it's very, very dangerous to fall in love with your, your, your writing. 
because absolutely everybody has an editor and I'm two or three or four, including I, my friends, my closest friends for years have been columnists at major daily newspapers and have well-known people. They also have editors. And the editors is the one who uh, evens out the the performance it's uh, they're very they're very critical folks but how, how did how did so then you leave the world herald uh in 1980 81 thereabouts mostly because you, you were able to go to a corporate environment and get a bigger paycheck to help you know feed your growing family how did the writing in, uh, environment differ in a corporate setting versus uh the freedom you had at the world herald you've, you've described for me on more than one occasion uh, the group editing that goes on in, in corporations, and it sounds like just a disaster. It's worse than group editing. There were 50,000-some people in this company, and there were about seven writers among the 50,000. Uh, some of the highest executives of the place couldn't write a sentence, and nor did they need to. I mean, their, their consideration was operations. Their consideration was finance. Their, you know, so... Uh, Writers are the hired hands. We have people to do that. Oh, like absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're the people who do that sort of thing. But uh, what, what you get in the uh, uh, corporate world is the approval process. So if if I write a story on the uh, dock department, uh, well, let's come up with a better one than that. On, uh, on the, <laughs> shipping. Uh, on the shipping department. And you do a story in the shipping department and all the good work that's done in the shipping department and you da 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 Then you have to have it approved by the manager in shipping, the director in shipping, the vice, assistant vice president in shipping, the vice president of shipping, and maybe somebody from the law department. So you send it out. This is out for approval. And the most fun I ever had was one time I wrote a six-paragraph story for a company publication, and I sent it out for approval. And one of the executives took out the second and third paragraphs. Another executive took out the first and the fourth paragraphs. And I had a two-paragraph story remaining that started with, he said. <laughs> you had nothing. So, but it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just silly. Unless, unless you happen to have a very senior person, uh, senior management person that represents your writing area. You don't want to write in a corporate world, believe you, me. During that time, though, in the corporate world is that time when you worked as a stringer for Newsweek, correct? So well, I was doing that at the World Herald and at the corporate place. Did you then find that to be maybe more of a creative outlet because you could get back to just practicing good old-fashioned yeah. journalism? Right. That, that, was, that was fun. Okay. And I've always uh, written, uh, I've always written newspaper-type pieces and history pieces and opinion pieces for other people. And that's not ghostwriting. It's just helping people along. So uh, I've had many, many stories that have appeared in publications over somebody else's name. But so like I say, I, I, <laughs> I'm happy to do it. It's fun. So later in your career, when, when you left the corporate world, you got involved in television and radio. You were on TV a, sh a program called Kaleidoscope, was is, which was essentially a news analysis style program. Um, and then you did a little bit of radio. Um, talk to me about the differences between television and radio. I, I, I've heard you confess before that you felt a lot more comfortable at a typewriter than you did in front of a camera or in front of a microphone like this. What is it about radio and TV that's scary? Do you hear this voice? You see this face? It's a voice for TV. Not a lot of hair up there. So I've got 
a, a voice made for newspapers and a face made for radio. Uh, but at any rate, actually, I ended up enjoying both of those things. Um, the Kaleidoscope show was 25 years old when I joined it, and it had, a, it had been an ethnic minority-type program, and, and uh, the new management at the station said, well, maybe we ought to get some other views, so they kind of expanded the panel to include folks who looked like me. And I, I enjoyed that very much. I was uh, everybody I, who ever saw me for the first two years said, "Why didn't you ever say anything on, on the air?" Because I was around professional television people who never shut up. And uh, but at any rate, when I finally learned how to speak, I enjoyed the heck out of it. And we we chewed the fat on lots and lots of local and regional and national news and uh, political issues. And and I was brought in sort of as a middleman. Uh, I surprised some people with uh, conservative talk, and, uh, and I surprised some people with occasional liberal talk. So I was supposed to be the middleman. And uh, it sounds like you did that. If you surprised people on both sides. Well, I, I must have done something right because I was accused of being a stinking Democrat and a stinking Republican frequently. So, two more topics I want to touch on briefly. One, I want you to share for our listeners the story of the time when you had the pleasure of interviewing Gloria Steinem. Let's let's start there because I think it's one of the best stories you tell. Just you were fresh out of the military, you're back, you're working for the Omaha World Herald, and take it from there. When I came back from two years of active duty in the army in Germany, I, I was unaware that some things had happened in the United States. For instance, the women's movement. I, I was unaware that that was underway and I uh, you know I, I just uh, simply had been away and so one of my early assignments was to interview Gloria Steinem who was a great leader of the uh, women's movement and the founder of Ms. Magazine and uh, very well known to everybody in the country except me so I, they, I think I was at Creighton University, as I recall, and I was put into a room with her, and I said, Hi, I'm Jim. I'm with the local newspaper. And within the first three or four questions, it occurred to her that I knew absolutely nothing about her, and I knew nothing about her movement. She was wearing misty pink glasses with, uh, you know, and, and uh, she was, a, a, I got to say this, she was a very attractive, she'd been a, Playboy money for crying out loud. She's a very attractive, attractive woman. Very yeah. attractive woman. But I didn't get it, and she knew I didn't get it. You were an easy target. And uh, at one point she said, you know, you strike me as a male chauvinist pig. And I said, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, interview went from bad to worse, and I went back to Carl Keith, my night editor, and he said, well, how did it go? And I said, Carl, I don't think I have anything to write here. I... Uh, <laughs> I didn't understand her. She certainly didn't understand me. And uh, perhaps we had a uh, miscommunication across the, uh, the uh, genders or something. But I, I didn't write a story. And so that was not my greatest moment. <laughs> Would that headline have read? And, and uh, then I started reading about her. And, hey, she's a big deal. She's really good. Big the leader. That headline could have read uh, Playboy Bunny shuts down local <laughs> reporter or something like that. Okay, next topic. Uh, Omaha in 1968, uh, when the race riots are going on, I, I believe you were involved at least on, in, in, to some degree covering those events in North Omaha. And I wondered if there's anything you can say just about the experience of being involved in something I, like that. I kind of came in at the end. There were, there were several really, really hot summers 
that and and the, the last summer was things were kind of simmering down. We we had a a, a group of um, they did not call themselves the Black Panthers, but they they had a, a name. I don't remember the name of the organization, and but the head of the organization. Uh, I had known at uh, in high school and at and at Creighton University. He was in my my grade, and I and I had seen him when he was starting up his advocacy and that sort of thing. Uh, I guess I would say I was I was pretty much in the aftermath of the of the you know the, we didn't there were there were no national guard visitations, uh, uh, but there. Frequently on summer nights, you'd hear on the police radio, we have rocks and bottles at a certain, meaning a police cruiser was having rocks and bottles thrown. And then they would just get out of the area, and, you know, and then sometime later you would. But th there was an awful lot of racial tension, and we had four nights of rioting. And that was definitely not in minority neighborhoods, it was it was mainly high school kids, college kids, a lot of hippies and yippies and bippies and those kinds of things, and it all started over the city council putting closing hours on Memorial Park. And I, my recollection is that at eight o'clock, the Clark the park had to be cleared. And at the time, it was the gathering spot for the whole center and western part of the city, and uh, the traffic was big, and, and the the, the uh, Dundee residents were tired of the parking going up into the neighborhood, so the city council took action and closed the park at 8 o'clock. Well, the first night they closed the park, Police Chief Richard Anderson, was a, who was a unique fellow, came out with a little bullhorn to say, folks, the uh, park is going to be closed here in five minutes, and I'm going to expect you to leave, like, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and, and your, your problem is not with me if you disagree with this action. Your problem is with the city council and the mayor, and you can take your issues to them. And five minutes later, the the park was to be closed. And uh, my wild guess is a thousand, maybe more than more than a thousand people ran all the way down the hill and occupied Dodge Street. And from then on, night every night for four nights, and people don't even know this happened. Police cruisers got burned. Nobody got killed. Uh, there were there were injuries. I know a police officer had an inner ear injury from a. Uh, an explosive that went off by his ear, and his career was ruined. But there were no deaths, uh, but but a lot of injuries. A reporter got got a nightstick on the head several times. Who was standing about six feet from me. I didn't know where you were going when you said he got a nightstick and then yeah, you paused. Yeah, well, his name is Pete Petrosic. Pete, I'm 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 with you, buddy. Shout out to Pete. Yeah, um, but uh, he was a Channel Six, as I recall. But at any rate, it was it was four nights of craziness and. Uh, the second night, the police brought out pepper foggers, which are machines that put out a whole bunch of... Uh, that sounds like something you'd order at Applebee's. Yeah, pe pepper, pepper foggers. They call I'll them pepper foggers. Pepper foggers and a Dr. Uh, pepper. Uh, what, what's the stuff? The tear gas. Tear gas. It, 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 it's a way of laying a fog of tear gas over a large area. Only what the police didn't tell them, it was, it was just fog. There was no tear gas in the thing. But they started to, the pepper foggers going, and the fog started going to the mob, and they all took off running and screaming because from from the fog. I mean, but but the next night they actually used uh, real tear gas. Real tear gas. So there was a lot of weeping. And <laughs> oh, another thing that happened the second or third night, uh, the police were using something that had never been done before: undercover officers. So they had an officer with a beard and da 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 who looked like who looked like the folks in the middle of Dodge Street. 
and the, the police started chasing the, the mob, and I know this guy's name. I'm not going to mention it. Uh, and they chased him down, into the, and he's running along with them, and he's assuming that his buddies are going to recognize him. Well, they didn't. And so they get into a backyard, and, and he he realizes that he's with, 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 the, with the mob. He's not, running for his life. He's running for his life. And so he's climbing up a wall, and as it was described to me, there were nightsticks clicking up the bricks behind him. And uh, he got thumped a few times, and then he finally said some language that indicated that he was one of them. And We're learning so, you got to so watch that, out that, for yeah. nightsticks. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good on the riots. Um, last question for me, and then we'll get you out of here. Um, and it, it kind of points to the bigger picture of, of the practice of journalism. But what is it about modern day journalism that concerns you the most, whether about the way it's being taught in schools or practiced on television news? What what gives you the most cause for concern? Journalism died uh, as it is traditionally practiced maybe 20 years ago. Uh Journalism for hundreds of years or more in this country was the disinterested reporting of the news. You're not taking a side. You're reporting what you see. You're reporting what you hear. If you are right-leaning politically, you've got to be able to do a left-leaning interview and do it justice. Do that speaker justice, same way on the other side. But uh, I've noticed this in some of the award ceremonies in journalism in, in the area. Uh, the kids taking journalism in college these days now all plan to become advocates because they have a double major in journalism and the rights of da-da-da-da-da. And it's abundantly clear to me that they are planning to take their writing and organizational skills and become advocates. We don't have anybody left. And you're seeing this in the national networks. You're seeing it in the national, nationally known newspapers that... Somehow that, 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 that brick wall between uh, disinterested reporting and uh, editorial opinion doesn't exist anymore. Because I think somewhere along the line, the, the uh, advisors that the, the newspapers were getting were saying, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with the report reporter putting his uh, personal observations. Well, yeah, there is. Uh, in, in my day, if, uh, I... I uh, if I if I was sent in to interview somebody w with one of the national presidential campaigns, I went in and interviewed the persons. I wrote down what they said. I put a story in the newspaper, and then all of my friends in that direction would say that was a great great story you wrote. That was just wonderful. Da, 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 da. And then a week later, they tell me to go cover the guy from the other side, and then my friends wouldn't talk to me anymore. Th this op this opinion stuff has has got to. I'd like to talk to the head, the dean of every journalism school in the United States and say, guys, you have got to get the wall built between reporting and opinion, and you need to get it rebuilt now. And, and, and to, the, to the students uh, who are coming out of these institutions, you, you can be an advocate, you can be a journalist, but you cannot be both. If you're going to be an advocate, go someplace and advocate to your heart's content. But don't tell me you're a journalist because you've got to cover who, what, where, why, and when without personal observations on what happened or what was said. That's well said. All right. Uh, James Fogarty, Stringer, uh, non-advocate, journalist, uh, Pulitzer Prize-nominated writer. 
thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure today. And you are... An immediate past plenty potentiary poobah. And washed up journalist. Thank you, James.